Please be seated. Good morning. For those of you who I haven't met yet, I'm Noah Bullock. I'm the executive director of Cristosal. We're a human rights organization that was founded in El Salvador, uh, and we now have offices in El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. Um, I'm also a longtime friend of Mike's, which is probably why I'm here. Uh, one of the things that has been kind of a connecting thread of a relationship or an ongoing conversation with Mike um, has really been around the church uh, and this idea of mission. Uh, what, what should the church be doing in the world? How should it partner to do things in the world? Uh, these have been the big ideas that we've been talking about for the better part of a decade together. Um, recently, I was, having, I was talking about these same issues with another friend of mine who happens to be Episcopal clergy, uh, and she told me, she introduced two sort of terms for me that churches, uh, specifically parishes like you, constantly are looking at the ways that you do out outreach, it's this idea of the things that you do for good in the world, but also in-reach, that in, a, in the life of a parish community, there needs to be some kind of a balance struck between both those things. The things that you do, you look inwardly to do for your personal spirituality or the spirituality of your community, but also those things and ways that you express that spirituality uh, outside of the four walls of the, of the temple. Uh, and so there's this interesting dynamic between in-reach in and outreach. Uh, and, and in sort of full disclosure, I'm the son of a priest, an Episcopal priest. And I've spent most of my life uh, trying to avoid the church uh, and in some ways running away from it. Uh, Mike, I, I, he didn't agree with me the last time I said this, but he seems to be running towards it constantly, and he's wearing a collar, and I think I'm right. Uh, <laughs> but oftentimes, I, in, ironically, in pursuing my own vocation uh, and in my professional field of human rights, uh, I've, and in El Salvador specifically, this work towards human rights has brought me back to a faith origin, to my own formation in the church. Uh, and sometimes I think it's useful to reflect on human rights work through a lens of the church, and sometimes it's useful to, to look at the church through the lens of human rights. Uh, and I wanted to share with you a reflection or a perspective of human rights from the human rights uh, lens on this dynamic, this duality between uh, inreach and outreach and mission. Uh, and I wanted to share with you a document that is important, I think, to shed light on those things. It's the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This was a document, it's one of the foundational documents of the UN system. Uh, it was signed by almost every nation in the world in the immediate aftermath of World War II. So as I read it, keep in mind the context. This is a generation that just suffered one of the most horrific events in human history. And they wrote together, they said that inherent dignity and the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. Disregard and contempt for human rights have resulted in barbarous acts which have outraged the conscience of mankind. The advent of a world in which human beings shall enjoy freedom of speech and belief Freedom from fear and want has been proclaimed as the highest aspiration of a common people. 
When I was in college and when I was thinking about what I wanted to do in the world, these were inspirational words, that a mandate for an international system uh, that believed that peace and security was based on inherent respect for rights and dignity of all peoples. It was a common aspiration of all nations. More recently, when I read these words, I hear uh, a different tone. Uh, it sounds to me more like a haunting warning or a reflection of a generation on a terrible mistake that they had made. A terrible mistake is the mistake that isolation was the foundation of security for each individual nation. The mistake that indifference to the ways that other people and other countries in the world were treated was a problem to be dealt with in those countries and not a problem for us to get involved with. I hear it as a, hor a haunting reflection uh, on their own lives, their own rights and dignities, now seeing their rights and dignity and liberation as interconnected with the millions who died in Nazi death camps, military campaigns across the world in the previous years. In a sense, what does this say about this idea of a balance between inreach and outreach? Well, the World War II generation believed that they're interconnected activities, that our own individual rights and security are interconnected to all people's rights and security. We are one. So in a sense, this inward spirituality and this outward spirituality should be understood as just one thing, one interconnected, intertwined, one communion. The, these sentiments are reaffirmed even in our own baptismal covenants that say, that question or ask us, will you seek and serve Christ in all persons, loving your neighbor as yourself? Will you strive for justice and peace among all people? and respect for the dignity of every human being. It's an interesting parallel, isn't it, between the founding charter of the United Nations systems and God's law, the one that founds our own communion. The other part that I wanted to, to, to call your attention to that strikes me about the Universal Declaration is this phrase that they say that, that disregard and contempt for human rights have resulted in barbarous acts which have outraged the conscious of mankind. There's a, this, this, this idea that there's an out, a collective outrage or even an individual outrage when we're confronted with the terrible things that we've been capable of doing to each other. It sounds to me like something that's a really healthy at response. It's a response, this outrage of our conscious is a reaction to something that we know is not right or normal. Yet so many of the forces in the days that we live in try and normalize the ways that we treat people as something slightly less than ourselves. The ways that we normalize systems of abuse against those people and specifically vulnerable groups or people who are different from ourselves. So I think this idea of our conscious being outraged when confronted with barbarous acts is the motivator for change. The motivator for that outreach. When we look inwardly and have an experience with God, how do we reflect that outwardly in a world where we're so often outraged? And I think this is an important concept because we cannot allow ourselves to be resigned to the normalization of violence, the normalization of injustice, inequality. We must be outraged. But how do we create change? Is change possible? 
when we look at the great structures, uh, powers and privilege, uh, unequal, unequal distribution of power and privilege in the world, what can be done about it? What can Holy Communion even do about it? Much less, what can I know a bullock in this world do? I wanted to share uh, two stories that I think help us answer that. And before I do that, draw one more parallel between faith and human rights. Human rights is an enterprise that's different than normal businesses. Normal businesses have to project profits within a specific period of time and analyze the benefits or costs of that specific enterprise and make a decision about whether they're going to see the results that their shareholders need. Human rights is a faith proposition. Human rights believes that we do things because fundamentally we believe all people are equal in rights and dignity. And we act as if that, that should be the standard, independently of whether we ever see that realized fully in our lifetimes. We believe that our actions contribute to what Martin Luther King called that, that bending arc of the moral universe, bending constantly towards justice. We don't expect to see the results in one quarter, or maybe even in one lifetime, but they're worth striving towards. So these two stories come out of our work in El Salvador, and the stories about people who believe change was possible when confronted with barbarous acts or historical norms that have let people vulnerable to injustice and violence. And the first one is a group of victims who have survived one of the most terrible acts of violence perpetrated in the American continent in modern times. I'm referring to the El Mosote massacre. It was a massacre uh, that was emblematic of the early period of the Salvadoran Civil War, which lasted from 1980 to 1992. The Salvadoran Civil War in this period, uh, the Salvadoran military opted for a military strategy of scorched earth to eliminate all internal enemies and political opposition to the government. Uh, they began to slaughter mostly rural communities in the northern parts of El Salvador, and El Mosote uh, was a small village in which, in a matter of three days, the Salvadoran army murdered over a thousand civilians, and most of them were children. For 30 years, the victims and survivors of this massacre have been denied justice. The Salvadoran government denied in the first decades uh, that the massacre even took place. The U.S. government, actually, in the, when the first reporting on the massacre happened in 1981, uh, denied that it happened as well. The victims have been waiting for justice, and immediately after the Civil War, justice was frozen. Uh, the government at that time passed a law, an amnesty law, that protected all, all war crimes from penal prosecution. That law recently uh, was ruled unconstitutional by the Salvadoran Supreme Court. In 2016, the court said, uh, ordered all of the lower level courts to reopen these historic crimes these cases of crimes against humanity and war crimes that were per perpetrated during the Salvadoran armed conflict. And in that uh, opening by the court, Crystal Sal became involved with this group of victims, this group of survivors, who had been organizing and seeking justice all this time, but at great odds. Uh, and what I wanted to share about this is that this is a historic change. Uh, the, the, the victims have been told to be silenced that their truth was not, was not real, uh, that they shouldn't expect anything uh, to help them repair their lives. 
And what's happened now is the Crystal Sala, and I'm here today with my colleague David, uh, who is the, one of the legal representatives of these groups of people. Uh, and we've been able to reopen the case. Uh, Crystal Sala, together with historic associations of, of, of victims uh, and organizations that have supported them throughout the decades, is now prosecuting the former Minister of Defense, who ran the country at that period, and the entire Salvadoran military high command for mass murder, terrorism, and mass rape. And we hope soon to be able to elevate those charges to crimes against humanity. In the first phase of the trial, we've been bringing evidence forward. And in case you were wondering what this has to do with Missouri or Holy Communion, uh, some of the forensic evidence we've been able to bring to church shows us that the bullets that were used to massacre these people were manufactured in Lake City, Missouri. A Salvadoran battalion called the Atlacat Battalion was trained and armed by the U.S. Uh, is the one who was responsible for this massacre. Uh, and in this other, in the evidence, the other evidence that we've been bringing forward is the testimony of the survivors themselves. For the first time in, in the history of the country, the people's truth has been able to have a day in court. And David and, and, and his team has supported the victims uh, in 38 different individuals to come forward and provide testimony to what happened during that massacre. 38 people have testified. And in their testimonies, after, they, after we are able to question them, the defense representing the perpetrators uh, cross-examines them. And it's an interesting dynamic because they try and trip up the victims to delegitimize their testimonies. Uh, they try and put little traps at them. Uh, and they say, for example, one older gentleman, most of these survivors are peasants. Uh, many of them had never had the opportunity of formal education. And so they are, they are humble people. Uh, and he gave testimony that a helicopter landed near his property. Soldiers came, off of the, came down off of the helicopter, uh, proceeded to shoot his entire family, and burn down his home. In the cross-examination, the defense lawyers said to him, uh, you said that a helicopter landed on your property. Is that true? And the gentleman says, yes, that's true. That's what I said. And then they ask him, do you know about distances and measures? And this guy thinks about it and he says, yes. And he says, well, if a helicopter landed on your property, could you please tell us how many meters it was long? And the guy sits and thinks about it, and he says, to be honest, I didn't get a chance to measure it. <laughs> the, when I asked David how the first, I, I sent David a text message after the first day of the hearings, and I said, how did it go? And David answered to me, uh, saying that the, the victims, uh, in their humility, their truth imposes, even on the defense attorneys. Uh, the truth is simple, but when it has a chance to be brought to light, it's transformative. When we're honest about the terrible things that we've done to each other, there's a possibility for change, and we see that change happening in the way that the judge is conducting the trial. We see that change even in the defense attorneys that have had to accept, they've been forced to accept that a massacre happens in their defense of their clients. We see the change in the media that now provides regular coverage to the trial that's been largely invisible in the popular press in the country for almost 30 years. 
So what I wanted to get at here is that for people who have been denied justice for 30 years, who have been discriminated against for 30 years, if they have held on to the hope that justice is possible and are willing to make the risk to bring their stories forward in court, then everybody must believe that justice is possible. The second story I wanted to share is a more contemporary story. It's a story of a family of 33 people who were living in an area outside of San Salvador, the capital of El Salvador. Uh, and this is an area that's controlled by one of the gangs uh, that perpetrates great acts of violence in the communities. Uh, the, the gangs exercise control over many aspects of the family's lives, where they can go to school, where they can get health care, whether they can visit their grandmother who lives in another area controlled by a different gang. And this family became in conflict with the authority, the criminal authority controlling their community uh, because they began, this, the gang began to suspect them of collaborating with the police. And different members, mostly children, uh, began to be threatened by gangs on their way home from school saying that we know that your family, a member of your family, is collaborating with the police and if you don't tell us who will kill all of you. And then later there was an attempted rape of three of the members and eventually the gang entered into the home one night and raped two of the female members of the family. And the gang said to the family, if you don't like this, if you don't tell us what we're asking you to tell us, then you'll all die here tomorrow. And the family picked up everything and moved to a different part of the country. They went into hiding. And they moved to a new home and never left. They stayed inside for fear that they would be identified by the gang that persecutes them or a contrary gang that might think that they were infiltrators in their territory. Tragically, uh, the response of the government to violence in El Salvador has been a military, military response. Uh, similar to other operations, uh, they, one night the police and the military entered into the community uh, and entered into the home uh, of these people and began to fire their machine guns and killed the matriarch of the family. When that happened, the family then was able to uh, enter into our assistance programs where we provided safe house protection for them, humanitarian and psychological and legal assistance to try and help them repair uh, the lives that were almost entirely destroyed through these atrocities. And while the family was in our safe house protection, uh, one of the younger girls drew this picture. I'll leave this with you all so you can look at it later and tell the story. But you can see it's a picture of a girl, a girl whose mouth, in place of her mouth, is a caged bird, and her eyes who have clearly seen too much. And with this picture, she wrote a poem. And the poem is called Sadness. She writes, if I'm free, I will be happy. I am the light that illuminates everywhere in the world. I am your shelter and happiness. And when we first saw this poster, we didn't really, I didn't personally really understand what this girl whose family had suffered so much in hiding, unclear about where they would find safety in this world, would be writing that she's the light that illuminates all places, that she is the shelter and that she is the happiness, didn't make a lot of sense yet. One day when we were able to find an option for this family to get refugee protection in a different country, we went to them with a proposal. We said uh, that you're not alone in the things that have happened to you. The violence uh, and impunity that you suffered are of no consequence of your own, rather part of a system of violence. 
And in that system, the state is failing to protect the citizens and provide justice for the crimes committed against them. And we propose to them to take their case to the Salvadoran Supreme Court. And they thought about it for about half of a second and said yes. Even knowing that they had guaranteed an option for themselves, they could leave the country and leave it all behind. They said that if we can do one thing so that other families don't have to suffer the things that we've suffered, it would be worth it. And so they went to the Salvadoran Supreme Court and filed a claim against the head of the police, the Attorney General, the President of the Security Council, the President of the Legislative Assembly, claiming that the, 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 the Salvadoran government and state is systematically violating the constitutional rights of the people and failing to protect individuals internally displaced by violence. On July 13th, we won a ruling, a historic ruling from the court that said that the family was right, that the Salvadoran state is fundamentally, is systematically violating constitutional rights of the people by failing to protect them. The court ordered the state to recognize internal displacement by violence and create a legislative and policy framework to begin to assist the victims of violence. They even ordered the, the government and the legislature to create a budget priority within the national, the national budget to fund programs to assist victims. So in effect, this family and this girl and their courage to seek structural change and to seek justice were the light and the refuge for potentially hundreds of thousands of other families in a similar situation. I wanted to share these stories with you all because I think that they highlight the ways that when we're honest about our consciences, when we try and move and take action to change the things that lead to barbarous acts in our own communities, we shine a light. We do outreach into the world. We shine that light of a vision of a better world that we find in our inward spirituality out into our own communities and into the world. And that change is possible. And in fact, for the people who suffer directly violence and injustice, change, transformation of these barbarous situations is survival. And for those of us who don't directly suffer those things, we have a special responsibility to them, to walk with them, and to shine a light in the world with them so that a, so that a better world might be, even if we never see that in our own life. En el nombre del Padre, el Hijo y el Espíritu Santo. Amén.